Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Thank goodness for the Winged Wheel Podcast day event, because that, that Panthers game was rough, man. If it was four hours later, I would have fallen asleep. Hank fell asleep in your lap, Brad. It, halfway through the first period, he was so overstimulated, I guess, by everything that had transpired in the day up to that point. He just KO'd and would not wake up till around early start of the second period. My, I had We all had uh, quite a bit of family come in for this one, which is really nice. Yeah, so shout out to them for, for coming out and supporting us and seeing what all this is about. You can't really understand it until you're there for a Winged Wheel podcast day. It, it's such a blast. But uh, my, it was my father-in-law's first ever NHL game. And in the third period, it was after Ben Chirot had like really had it with Matthew Kachuk and just threw down the gloves and was trying to you know beat him up. That whole scrum was getting sorted out and he leaned over to Mel and I and was like, so a lot of fights, huh? We we're like, yeah, a lot of fights today. A lot of fights, not as many goals as you're used to seeing. I kind of feel bad that that was his first Red Wings game, but it was a, it was a unique game to go to. Yeah, it was the Red Wings' first time being shut out this year, so uh, go us. In 2024. Yeah. Because they got shut out earlier this season by... Let me guess. Florida? The Florida Panthers. Sergey Bobrovsky. Anyhow, there's uh, the, the tone of this episode is definitely going to be a lot more feet on the ground. Definitely six feet on the ground for this episode, but it's okay. No one's panicking, or maybe Evan is. It's really hard to judge what he's going to do on any given episode. But I don't for, know where I'm at right now. I, physically and mentally. Yes. Yeah. It's the recovery episodes after Winged Wheel podcast nights are interesting ones. So forewarning to the listeners. And if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. We're usually a little bit more lively than this. Without further ado, welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to be, at the end of the show, recapping Winged Wheel Podcast Day at the LCA. It was a really great time, our sixth one ever with the Detroit Red Wings specifically, and uh, just a blast. Really, again, nice to have that before the Panthers game, otherwise it would have been it would have been tough to, to walk away from that game. But we'll be recapping that later. First, we're going to get into the two Red Wings games that have happened since our last episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast the, the trend broke, the six-game win streak broke, and we had two losses that we watched against the New York Islanders and then against the Florida Panthers. We're going to be discussing what those two losses mean for the playoff outlook, the projections, the standings currently, what Detroit's probabilities are. We'll get into some other notes about the Detroit Red Wings, uh, prospects like Trey Augustine and more. Then we're going to get into the trade deadline. Tanev got traded, which was a big one. Toronto traded for Labushkin again which was interesting. And then notes on what Steve Eisman is looking for from his you know, kind of trade deadline endeavors, more information on that. And then NHL news, the Pedersen. I'm glad we got that Pedersen conversation in. We ham-fisted it in because he then signed with Vancouver like a day or two later. So we'll talk about that and more NHL news before we get into overtime. Before all that, very quickly, I want to let you know that the Winged Wheel podcast is supported by our Patreon supporters patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast if you want to join the so-called dub dub club you get access to benefits like our bonus overtime episodes additionally you get access into all of our giveaways we are giving away two tickets to every single detroit red wings home game the vast majority going to our patreon supporters additionally you can join our winged wheel podcast discord community which is a blast 
And it also helps us run Winged Wheel Podcast Nights in partnership with the Grand Rapids Griffins, as well as the Detroit Red Wings, which is now sixth time we've done the Red Wings one, and we've done the Griffins one once, which is, we're excited to continue both of those. You allow us to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation and continue to improve uh, this show. So again, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Well, the good news from the New York Islanders game is that Ole Mata rubbed it in a lot of people's faces, mine included. Uh, this is his Ole Mata offensive dynamo annual tradition, maybe even quarterly tradition where he comes in and shows us that he's you know quite useful offensively from time to time. He gets inspired, goes below the hash marks and, and jumps in. But other than that, I think the takeaway from the Islanders-Red Wings game where the Red Wings ultimately fell 5-3 is that in retrospect, that's one that Detroit wants back in my mind. They were due. It was what you would call a trap game. You're at the end of a heater. You had a couple of big wins, big blowout wins. You had a crazy moment with Patrick Kane in Chicago and then you dummy Washington. You feel invincible and you're coming in against a weaker opponent and you forget to show up. You forget to start the game. You're sleepy. You're unmotivated. And that's what the Red Wings look like for a very large chunk of that game. It was a classic Islanders game wherein big chunks of the game would pass and not really much would happen. And you're like, wow, yeah, it's the Islanders. This is just what the Islanders have been for so long. Well, there were things that happened. Just the referees missed them. Look, I have thoughts on the refs these past two games. And the Florida game, my thoughts are independent of how Detroit played. Like the refs could have done things differently and Detroit still would have lost. But the Islanders game, that that's one of those where you can categorize it as, yeah, the Red Wings shouldn't have put themselves in the position for it to be close enough to be called by the refs, but I think the needle moved on that one. The Dana White quote, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. The Red Wings left it in the hand of the refs, and the refs failed them. Again, I'm in the same boat as you. I think, ah, well, anybody who watched the games, I think it's probably a universal opinion. The refing was horrible in both games, but in very different ways and with very different implications. I genuinely think the refs cost the Red Wings at least a point on Thursday. It was 99% of the time we sit on here and complain about officiating. We understand it's bad both ways, Mm -hmm. which was a lot of the Detroit Florida game. It was, they were just calling crap arbitrarily and for no reason. And that wasn't exclusively against Detroit. And you can feel however you want about that. It didn't affect the outcome of the game. It was bad. It was arbitrary. The Red Wings were getting screwed specifically against the Islanders. That was a very one-sided officiating display. Again, before people throw out things we're not saying, there's no conspiracy. The refs did not want the Islanders to win. This is just good old-fashioned referees being bad at their jobs. To go through the game, the Islanders scored twice in the first period. The first one, the Brock Nelson goal, to me, that was kind of a little bit of a warning sign that maybe Detroit was a little off. That puck was kind of moving around, heading towards Detroit's net in the slot area, and it was on Sherratt's stick at one point, and Nelson took it off and fired it home. Casey Sizika scored uh, the second goal in the first period, and then uh, Detroit was down 2 nothing going into the second. Olimata scored the first uh, of his two goals in the second to make it 2-1, and then Patrick Kane headed into the third period, uh, tied it 10 seconds in, actually, from Larkin and Petrie. Uh, that was, that extended his point streak to 10 games, which is where it ultimately ended. And then Brock Nelson scored again to make it 3-2. 
And that's where you kind of got the sense that this just wasn't Alex Lyon's night. Not a terrible shot, but I think one that if Lyon could do it over, like the positioning would have been a little bit more sound where he wouldn't have had to, you know, kind of pinch his shoulder up or uh, kind of struggle to make that save, which he ultimately didn't. Ole Mata scores once again, his fourth goal of the season, Gosses, Baron Sprung on the assist to tie it. And you're like, okay, Detroit, not their cleanest game, a little disjointed, some defensive lapses. Uh, they're not playing as well as they did against, you know, St. Louis, for example, but they're still in this game and New York's not walking all over them. And then Barzell scored. That It just wasn't Lions night. That, that whole sequence of events from, the, from Mata getting tripped and no call to Christian Fisher immediately doing uh, a hook. And it was a hook, but that getting called for whatever reason. Lyon losing the puck in the crease on, I think it was still on the power play. I can't remember if the time ran out yet. But he just lost the puck in his crease. It ends up in the corner. And by the time he tracked where it was, Barzell had already banked it off him. It was a, that was a tough scene all around. I, I think we've gotten better. And I know I have about being pretty even keeled, even when things are going bad. That was a two minute stretch where the blood started to boil a little bit about how everything went down. And then you remember we're coming off a six game winning streak. It's fine. One loss isn't going to be the end of the world. Maybe they'll come back. They didn't. But what at least it was nice having losses? that. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't, but it was nice having that belief that it might happen. Haven't yeah. had that in a while. Yeah, like even going down into the next period, at no point was a like they. Yeah, they're out of this. Florida was a different feeling a little bit, but we'll get into that. Olimata, though, I, I want to say I've I've lumped him in a lot with Hall and Petrie in terms of guys who have just been rotating among those five, six, seven spots for Detroit, and I think. In fairness, Mata has been down there a lot. I think his one-on-one defensive play has been quite poor this year. Uh, You've seen him miss the body a lot at points, but he has kind of tightened it up a lot more lately than I've personally been giving him credit for. Yeah, like the the cannon of a shot for his first of its two goals and then firing home the second one, like offensive dynamo, haha, like that's fun and that's great, but his game has been a lot more sound in general lately. So I, I think he deserves more credit than maybe what I and others have been giving him as of late, I would like to see some more consistency, but this was a nice game from him despite the loss overall. Yeah, he's he's a notch above Holden Petrie for sure. He just gets lumped in with them because he was part of that rotation for a while and he's not stepped up to the level of the four guys above him. So it just it's a natural grocery stick on the blue line. So yeah. it, it makes for easy conversation. Yeah, Islanders got the empty net goal, 5-3 final. And as Brad said, Reffing a factor, Detroit's you know sloppy play, defensive lapses a factor, uh, just overall disjointed, and Alex Lyon didn't bail him out, so that was a loss that uh, against an opponent that they would have wanted back. But again, no panic. It's off a six-game win streak, you're gonna lose eventually. Yep, it's totally fine. And then Detroit had Florida on Saturday afternoon, and we knew this would be a an important game, but unfortunately, a tough game. If you have not watched the Florida Panthers lately, that game would have given you a window into why a lot of people are not just saying they are going to be cup contenders, but maybe even cup favorites. And after watching them that game, I think they're up there for me. They might be my pick. I think they're the most likely to come out of the East right now. And not just because they have a lot of points in the standings, because of the way they're playing hockey, you can understand they're, they're in playoff mode right now. 
Yeah, they check a lot of the boxes that you would expect from a team that's going to win the Stanley Cup. And one, one of my big takeaways uh, as a secondary opinion from that game is I think we all owe Paul Maurice a huge apology. Man, that is a really well-structured, yeah. systematic team. They stick to what they are, which is aggressive. Mm-hmm. Their penalty kill yeah, dude, it was, was, it was phenomenal. Crazy. I had Crazy. anxiety and the puck wasn't even on my stick. I'm like, I'm going to lose the puck because they bear down on you so hard. The, Every time Patrick Kane entered the zone and did that little you know, lateral pass to the winger, they were all over that yeah. immediately. There was no room to make plays. No. There, uh, Maurice had a quote about the way his team plays and watching it. He's absolutely right. He's like, we're going to give up a couple chances, a couple good chances, not many. But a couple really good ones, and if you don't bury them, it's going to be a long night for you. And that is exactly how this game played out. Because there were times their over-aggressiveness burned them. Mm-hmm. It led to two Patrick Kane breakaways. It led to Alex Debrinkit having the entire slot to himself and ringing it off the post. They didn't go in, and it was a long night for Detroit. Yeah, unfortunately, Bobrovsky probably plays better against Detroit than anyone else in the league. Like, even the Kane breakaway where he tried to slide it between Bobrovsky's five-hole while he got him moving, I know that was a a prime opportunity. Like, yes, grade-A chance, breakaway, Patrick Kane, the hottest, you know, offensive player on the Red Wings right now. Watching that, it didn't even scare the back of the net for me. I think Bobrovsky was so solid the entire time. That was just, he was on and the Detroit wasn't beating him. The thing, the irritating part about that breakaway is he had him. He just missed he just missed his spot. Bobrovsky went for the poke check. Kane got around it. The five hole was wide open. And he just hit what, about four inches on the pad away from where he wanted it to go. So 4 nothing final by the Florida Panthers. Shut out Detroit. Outshot them 37-21 officially. And in general, I think there's a spectrum of, of belief on why this game went how it did. We were talking before, I think I'm a little harder on the Red Wings on this one specifically than you are, Brad, but everyone has a universal opinion of the Florida Panthers are a tough opponent, and they came in and played their game, and you know the context of Detroit needs these points to continue their momentum in the playoff race is true, but at the same time, you almost can't be mad if you're losing to the best team in the league right now. Like This is akin to the third period against the Edmonton Oilers when they just decided they were the Edmonton Oilers in that loss for Detroit. Yeah, for 35-ish minutes of that game, I thought the Red Wings were doing fine. They weren't generating a ton of offensive chances because the Florida Panthers are just that good, and you could see it. It wasn't that... I had any huge criticisms of what the Red Wings were doing to that point in the game. They were just outclassed. They were just playing a better team, and it showed. And the game was close. They weren't getting waxed. The shot differential hadn't exploded yet. And, you know, again, Detroit wasn't getting a ton of great chances, but neither was Florida. They had more, but not by a significant margin. And then the wheels came off the bus. And... The Florida Panthers, and we've talked about this at length, and we've used Tampa as the shining example of this forever, and I think Florida's going to be the shining example of this now. To be a good cup contender, your roster needs to be full of stars who are pricks. And Florida, Kachuk, you can call him a rat, you can call him more of like the Nick Cousins, you know, coward type, because 
Kachuk doesn't answer the bell, whatever. I don't care where you fall on that spectrum for this point. Cousins is going to piss you off. Kachuk's going to piss you off. Sam Bennett's going to piss you off. They have a lot of other, even Oliver Ekman Larson was being a little irritant on the ice all game, which just buying into the Florida system. And when you snap, you know what they do? They Make laugh at you and go score on the power play. Yeah. The, that's where the Red Wings have evolved, but not all the way. You know, years ago, for the last however many years, we kept talking about how the Red Wings game in, game out would fail the punk test. Teams would, you know, be physical with them, fight them, do a lot of what Florida was doing, and Detroit would just back off. They look scared. They're not stepping up. They have no... Now we're seeing a lot of it this year where the guys get into it. Look at what Sherratt was doing last night. You know, Dabrinkit's had a couple fights. Larkin's in the middle of everything. And you go up and down the roster, and now the Red Wings are starting to be a roster full of pricks. But the difference is between where Florida's at on this scale and Detroit's at, Florida knows how to turn it off. They know how to turn away. They know how to let it go. Detroit didn't. They got goaded into a lot of garbage, and they fell right into it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, I I agree with you that it was close in terms of the balance of the play. I did, even when it was 0-0 heading into the second period, I thought, you know, this is still, Florida's controlling this. Detroit's not really getting a lot established. That first penalty kill by Florida, I was like, ah, this is... This is some kind of day for Detroit, and I, I'm worried it's going to be all 60 minutes of it. Even going into the third period, down to nothing, I, I thought if Detroit plays the same way they did for the first 40, they're not going to win. But the good news about Detroit this season is their last 20, a lot of games, has been among the league's best. That third period goal, the first goal, Evan Rodriguez, within the first five minutes of the third, that was a dagger. And Detroit, they just were dumb in their own zone, wouldn't get it out, a lot of disjointed play, weren't. They weren't just making the smart play to get it out. They were getting a little cute with it. They were getting beat down low. Like it, it just was, you could see that goal coming from a mile away. And then at that point in my mind, the game was already lost. Now, the the rough stuff started early. Like we're, we're heaping all of this praise onto the Florida Panthers right now. Don't get it twisted. Like at Red Wings fans, for good reason, their blood was boiling watching the Panthers. Like they pissed you off. And that is part of their game. Kachuk went in for a hit on Wallman. It might have been a high hit, and he just kind of floated into it pretty stupidly, and Wallman saw it and tabletopped him and flipped him, which was great from Wallman, but then the Panthers immediately, and this was intentional, were all over Wallman, going after him all game, and they used that as their catalyst to, to you know, incite the physical aspect of the game that they brought to Detroit, even though it was Kachuk who put himself in that position. But that again, it's not about what's fair and what's not. It's about how do you get the boys going, and that's what Florida was doing. And... It evolved into Ekman Larson throwing a punch at Debrinket, who's already being held by one or two other Panthers. It evolved into Kachuk, you know, throwing slashes and then skating away. It evolved into Bennett, you know, a, a lunatic after the whistle walked away with offsetting penalties. Drives me insane the way the refs managed that game. But I think by the time the Red Wings were down three nothing, I think they already had lost. You can argue they had lost by the time they were down two nothing. So when Ben Sherratt did. The maybe not so smart thing in terms of the scoreboard of dropping his gloves and going after Kachuk. Call me a caveman, but I, I didn't care. I was like, at that point, who cares? Make him pay for something. Make him answer the bell on something because this game is lost. Yes and no. They started this garbage before it was 3 nothing, though. That's kind of where it gets me. Ben Trot officially snapped 
after <laughs> that moment. But the lead, he was every Red Wings fan. The lead up was happening, and we as fans don't need to be rational. We can be as angry and throw as much hatred towards the Panthers as we want. We're not getting paid to win the game. The Red Wings have to have that switch that yeah. they don't seem to have yet. And yeah, I'm with you. Towards the end of that game, if you're playing a division rival and they've been running around being a bunch of rats very effectively all game and you know the game is lost, yeah, go punch as many people as you want. I'm fully on board. 15 minutes left in the game, yeah, maybe not then. You still want to, you have to gain respect from these teams. And, you know, running around being a bunch of piss babies for the last 10 minutes, although fun and justified, not going to get you a lot of respect from that team because they know, well, we just handled you. At no point did you feel like you were going to win this game. And now when you come and try to run us, we're going to laugh at you. They're going to do it again. Yeah, 100%. So Florida has the book on how to rattle Detroit. So the next time they play, they, Detroit has to know what's coming and they have to respond differently. I think the biggest takeaway for me from this game is, you know, it all started out with very tight checking from both teams. Not a lot was being generated. The Red Wings just couldn't keep into that track meet the whole game. And obviously, you know, there's elements like the the refereeing was very interesting and there were some additional minors assessed to Red Wing players where I was very confused why that might be occurring. And then what a diplomatic way to put it. Yeah, you can't and we can't have a power play coming out of a scrum. It's not fair. No. And when Florida gets a power play, their power play is just an all-star team. And they made the Red Wings pay as soon as there were mistakes. And the execution from the wings started to really go down the the tank as the game progressed. Passing got atrociously bad. Outlet passes got atrociously bad. What are you talking about? They were all tape to tape. <laughs> they were tape to tape. Unfortunately, the other one was the Florida Panthers defenseman standing on the blue line who thought he got a one-timer from Jeff Petrie. <laughs> It's so, you know what, people say, oh, yeah, that's six games in 10 days, teams looking tired. Yeah, sure, I'll buy into that a little bit, but everybody goes through that stretch, and I'm not going to cry for the other. We just talked about how Washington was on a back-to-back, and I was like, I, I don't feel bad for them. So I'm not going to feel sit here and feel bad for the Wings that they've played that many games in 10 days. It looked okay from from the first 25 minutes of the game and then it to me it really florida just kind of played the perfect road game after that they you know took what the red wings gave them which turned out to end up being a lot and bobrovsky just did bobrovsky things and that was it so the pot actually before i get into the positive takeaways from this the refs and i'm going to do this and i'm just going to let it go because i only want to talk about the refs so much on one episode but they managed that game terribly, period. I'm not saying they tilted the scale towards Florida. There wasn't a world where Detroit played the kind of game they did and they were going to win. And frankly, when Detroit had the power play, it was Florida was just dominating them. The puck was never settled in the Florida zone. But they they did the cowardly thing of when someone would incite a scrum, very obviously incite a scrum, and you let a little bit go, you let the game play out, you let the guys figure it out, you know, the tempo of the game, what kind of narrative is going to be happening. I'm all for that. I'm a hockey player. Uh, I'm not saying, you know. That's uh, what game management is supposed to mean. Yeah. But it was every single scrum that was started by a two-hander or someone like jumping face wash or punch after a whistle where nothing else happened. And they'd, they'd set offsetting minors. Like Bennett and Sherrod at one point, I was like, I, that one to me is is nuts. 
And then the game got out of hand to the point where at the end they were doing that thing that refs do, which is where they just hand out 10-minute miscon- No, that's a Garrett Rank thing. I think, But I think a lot of refs do that when a game is out of hand. Well, yeah, maybe it's just more of a thing because he lets a lot more games get out of hand. And that's the thing. I'm like, you do that when a game is out of hand, but there are, there are certain situations where it's not your fault. Like, let's say there's a high hit late and teams are just incensed. But that was building the entire time. And... You know, you're hitting Fabry a 10-minute misconduct for getting face-washed after the whistle. He didn't do anything. And it's fine. There's three minutes left. You understand it's it's just to get him off the ice and to try to diffuse the situation. But it's a lost cause. The non... Like, they they called too many offsetting minors, and by the time they called the extra penalties, they just flat-out got it wrong. Wallman getting four minutes and a, a misconduct was a joke. Like... That was a whole nothing burger, really, oh the my. whole sequence of events. Because what happens when you call too many offsettings in a game like this, and this is the only excuse I'm going to give the Red Wings, again, don't think it would have had any impact on the game. But if you're a team like Florida, and Florida is very intentionally and effectively doing what they were doing, and they realize every time they do it, it's an offsetting call, why the hell would they stop? They're going to keep taking the trades. A hundred percent. They're going to handpick the guys they want to take off the ice at some point. Yeah. And even if you're not, you know, taking cider off for Lister Reinen or whoever, you're just going to, because you, like you said, Brad, if you're dominating open ice and you're controlling play, yeah, you'll take four and four all the time. Detroit's going to have a really hard time, you know, generating any kind of offensive comeback. A- again, it didn't really change the balance of the game. I think there were moments where, I just didn't understand why Florida was getting away with what they did. But then Detroit, as Brad alluded to earlier, Detroit started to play the same game and they got away with some and then Detroit got some extras. It doesn't matter. Detroit lost because they were the worst team today. But that that was just a terrible display of game management by by the refs. And it became a gong show at the end. If you're handing Robbie Fabry a 10-minute misconduct for existing at the end of the game, nine times out of 10, that's your fault. And, and to me, that was just brutal from the refs. No, it, also they missed like, 30 seconds of flat-out six-on-five hockey, too many men by Florida. They weren't even close to being on the bench. Like, they were just... You were probably watching the game and going, man, Florida seems like they're everywhere. It turns out they literally were. <laughs> Pathetic. It, it, that was just... I try not to give too much airtime to ripping on the refs, but that was a bad one. And I, I will bet anything they got a call from the head ref after that game or the next day to review, hey, here's the 15 things that you you know, screwed up to put it gently. What the hell happened out there? Cause that really, was a joke. Do you really think that call happened? Cause yeah, I don't know. I, I a hundred percent. This happens happened. way too often in the NHL for me to think it's a problem. They care to fix. No, I, I think it's a problem. They care to fix. I, my take is that I think the NHL is, is seeing a transition of the garden. I don't actually know like the ages or the experience of the refs, but we've seen so many refs who have been around for a long time with a lot of tenure who know how to manage these things, retire or leave. It's growing pains. And unfortunately, refereeing, it's it's a long, like, it's a long time for that to kind of settle in. I, we've been seeing this a little bit more over the past few years, and it is, growing pains is putting it nicely, for sure. Anyhow, that's enough about the refs, I think. Good takeaways from this game, in my mind. I was talking to some people after the game at the uh, Winged Wheel podcast night after party, and a, a couple of folks had some really good notes. Detroit got a good whiff of what playoff hockey is going to be like if they make it this year this is what they have to expect even if they're not playing florida like they are going to get this kind of game a lot maybe not so much physicality maybe they'll keep it a little bit more reined in but this stifling play you know hard on the puck hard on the body 
not letting you play your game. Like Evan, you said they read what Kane was going to do and they shut that down before it even it's started. Gonna, it gets worse in the playoffs because teams don't have to worry about the grind of the season anymore. They're like, okay, we need to focus on one team, yeah. who they're good players, how do they execute plays, and a team like Florida will shut that down pretty quick. And the Red Wings didn't adapt at all that game. No. they For how little offense they were generating – Boy, did they sure pass up a lot of looks thinking that that extra pass was going to be there. Because in their defense, in a lot of recent games, it has been. Wasn't there tonight, and they didn't seem to realize that. Florida did an excellent job keeping the puck to the perimeter, especially when when Florida was on the penalty kill. How many times did Patrick Kane, you know, come up from low to high on the cycle and have to cycle it back down because there was just nothing in the middle of the ice for the Red Wings to get to it? It truly was a masterclass in how to play the penalty kill. Yeah, and in quote-unquote playoff hockey, when games go like that, and you want to be a team like the Florida Panthers, and you want to beat a team like the Florida Panthers, all right, we're not generating anything the traditional way. Get that puck in the goalie's feet and send three guys at them like a missile. Like Sometimes just- you've got to just throw something on net, which the Red Wings seem... Uh, trust me, I'm not a shoot guy, <laughs> but... You know, maybe sometimes you just got to throw in a different look there and throw something to the net and see what happens. Yeah, because if you get that game within one, then maybe Florida thinks for a second before trying to uh, start the next scrum. Because if they then go down on the penalty kill, it's different. But yeah, you have to just generate your own break. And in a game where you were decidedly not allowed to to generate offense the way you wanted, you yeah. got to throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. So Detroit got away for that. You have to think... Derek Lalone and the Red Wings, uh, the the team leadership as well, will think, how do we adjust our game so the next time this happens, we're better prepared? You keep cooler heads. How do you adjust your play style? How do you respond physically? What does the punk test look like for you? What does answering it look like for you? And also, you know, with the context of the trade deadline, you're going to assume that Steve Eisenman watched that and thought, wow, my want for, you know, a quote-unquote nasty defenseman with, with snarl, uh, Radko Gudas type or something like that. I would imagine that want is amplified. A guy who's been in the playoffs to do it, a guy who's played, you know, the kind of game that the Panthers have played because, you know, you fight fire with fire at that point. And I think that might maybe amplify the want for for something of that effect at the trade deadline for Detroit. Yeah, it would make sense. Uh, we, we were doing that thought experiment at Harry's after the game with a bunch of guys uh, not a lot of those available, so that no. might be tricky. That's what I keep coming back to. Everybody keeps saying they want this, you know, gritty, hard to play against defenseman, and I'm saying, who is who is the option? Who is the prime candidate? It's based on the fact that not many are available. It's probably one that's going to be leaving a lot, you know, left to be desired in terms of actual on ice play, and the physicality is going to be more of a hallmark of what they do, which is not the most comfortable feeling. But I, I wonder if that's the direction Detroit goes. All right, we're going to talk about the playoff push in their standings, but we're going to take a quick break to let you know that this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast is proudly brought to you by Labatt Blue Light. Created in 1983, this premium light Canadian Pilsner is a delicately balanced beer brewed with Cascade hops and a blend of malt. It's fresh, crisp, and brewed to the highest quality standards. There's a little bit of Canadian kindness in every sip of Labatt Blue Light. How did it get in there? They're Canadian. That's how. You can spread the love yourself by sharing a Labatt. And when you do share a Labatt, you're not just sharing a beer. 
You're sharing an experience that'll pair with anything from hockey to a hoedown, which I think is similar to what Evan's dressed for right now. So next time you're watching a hockey with your buds, be sure to share Labatt because while you might not all root for the same team, although we on this podcast do hope you're rooting for the Red Wings, you can all enjoy a Labatt Blue Light. We honestly love going to games in Detroit and seeing Labatt being the beer that fans clamor for all over the arena. It's a reliable beer and great to have in your hand when celebrating a goal. So head to the link in the description of this episode or the one you see on your screen to find Labatt in stores near you today. You must be 21 or older, and as always, enjoy responsibly. Okay, so Detroit's playoff push. They lost two games. They were in the first wild card seed heading into those two games, and unfortunately now they are still in the first wild card seed. It's okay. It, not ideal to lose two in a row, but you had just won six. It's fine. Detroit is sitting at 72 points in 61 games played. The second wild card seed is Tampa Bay. 72 points in 63 games played. So Detroit has two games in hand, and this is at the time of recording, so it might have changed by the time you listen. The Islanders are at 60 games played. The Capitals are at 60 games played, and they have 66 and 65 points respectively. And the Devils are at 61 games played, and they have 64 points. So Detroit is, they still hold the cards in their hand. They are six points back of the Leafs, and the Leafs have one game in hand on them. So that is... Less of a focus now if you're looking at the playoff rates. It's more of a wild card push at the moment. It hasn't removed anything like in terms of the confidence or Detroit's pace. Again, losing two games in a row is not ideal, but Detroit had the margin. We talked a lot in our optimism on previous episodes is the cushion is good because now one weekend doesn't devastate you. Uh, Prashant Iyer put out some projections. Uh, Detroit is currently on pace for 97 points. And the current projected playoff cutoff is uh, 91 points. So that's that's some cushion. A few games could change it, but uh, that is some cushion. And models have them ranging anywhere from 60 to 74% probability in terms of making it if you're into that kind of thing. So Detroit is still you know, in a comfortable position. Not comfortable where they can rest easy, but a comfortable position where they can bounce back from this and... You know, not have to sit here and regret this weekend the same way they regretted the two Ottawa games last season. Yeah, the only way that what happened the last two games that would make me feel uncomfortable is like if this week, for example, they had like Colorado and Vegas coming up. <laughs> hey, man, you're not giving enough respect to uh, to jumping in the mullet arena. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we. I got to give Arizona some respect. They did us a favor today by uh, pumping the capital. So yeah, keeping another wild card hopeful a little bit further away. And I think the Devils got smacked today too. So it, this might just turn into a four horse race pretty quickly between Detroit, Tampa, the Islanders, and Philly for those last three spots. Which, if there's only four teams for three spots, that's math in Detroit's favor. Here's what's coming up for Detroit. They have a few days off here. They're going to be playing on Wednesday uh, in Colorado, 9.30 Eastern. We're actually going to drop our next episode before that game because it's going to be our official trade deadline preview. And then on Friday and Saturday, also on the road, back-to-back, they have Arizona at 9 p.m. Eastern and then Vegas at 10 p.m. Eastern. So a lot of travel. You're going to be on the road. It's a back-to-back. Vegas on the second half of a back-to-back isn't fun. And then a couple days off, and they have Buffalo on Tuesday the 12th. But on the 8th, the day of the Arizona game that's the trade deadline earlier that afternoon like a lot of moving parts and then a lot of moving parts off the ice that's a tough stretch for Detroit so losing two is fine ideally you know if if you have the benefit of hindsight being 2020 
you'd do differently in the Islanders game because that seemed more attainable to you, but you had the cushion for it. But they can't walk away from Colorado, Arizona, Vegas with, you know, zero or one point or whatever. Like, they need to steal some points here. Uh, Colorado's going to be tough on the road. Vegas is going to be tough on the road. Don't discount Arizona, who just broke that losing streak. Like, they need to walk away with some points here to make these two losses seem more distant than they are. One, one, and one feels like the realistic ideal. If they could walk away with with three points, you obviously want to do better than losing twice, but you walk away with a 500 points percentage, and you can feel okay for a road trip on that part. Yeah, I would agree. And Vegas and Colorado haven't been in great form the past little bit here, so hopefully they don't wake up (laughs) when the Red Wings come to town. But, you know, if you can get a win against them and, you know, maybe Arizona as well. Yeah, if you're walking away with more than half the points, you're probably okay on that little stretch this week. The Again, it's a thin silver lining, very, very thin silver lining, but Detroit had some time off because of the road trip to think about that Florida game. They had some time to practice. They had some time to, to have some conversations with each other about what they need to change because that was that's a big test for them, and that was uh, that was a wake-up call. You want to be a playoff team, you've got Florida, you got Colorado, you got Vegas. In the playoffs, you gotta win on the road. So here's an opportunity to at least demo that a little bit and see if you if you, you got what it takes. It's also like one thing to take away from Florida as well is playoff teams start playing like playoff teams before the playoffs. That's how they get ramped up. That's how they don't come in cold and rusty, and that's how they don't get caught off guard by going down 2-0 in a playoff series early. Like they get ready. You're right, Brad. Credit to Paul Maurice. So if Detroit has that test and they can draw something from it, then yeah, this three-game stretch is going to be one hell of a litmus test, but it's going to be a litmus test. Overall, though, I'm not panicking. And I know on this show, we're not you know, shy about being negative when we're actually negative. And I don't know that any three of us are feeling ultimately negative relative to you know the optimism we've had for the last couple episodes. Yeah, and I was being a shithead about it. But if you look at their schedule past Vegas, it actually looks very, very favorable for a good stretch there. Not like necessarily games that you write off in a bunch of San Jose's and Chicago's, but no President's Trophy contenders for a while after that. Yeah, they have Florida in the, on the 30th. but Oh, sorry, yeah, outside of that one. Because they got a lot of the Islanders and teams of that category. Yeah. And you need to win those games. Yeah, after the next road trip, they have Buffalo on the road. Arizona at home, Buffalo at home, Pittsburgh on the road, Columbus at home, Islanders at home, Nashville on the road. Like there, there's a mix in there, but not Florida, Edmonton, every game, right? A couple yeah. teams there where, you know, you can really break the hearts of their fans and end their season with, with some some wins there. So yeah, it's it's a March is a good mix of perennial contenders yeah. and teams who think that they still have a shot to make the playoffs. So if you can upset some some fan bases, that's what you do. After the Florida game, there's a stretch of eight games where you could argue those are eight teams that are at least statistically likely to not make the playoffs, with the exception of maybe Nashville. All right. We'll see how the Red Wings do. Uh, some other quick Red Wings news. Trey Augustine, man, what a season. What a season for both of Detroit's goalies so far in terms of their prospect system. They're uh, in between the pipes line. Sorry, thank you. Uh, we have we've talked a lot about Costa, but Trey Augustine just led MSU to a uh, Big Ten regular season title as a freshman goalie, one of the top 
goalies in the country. He has just been outstanding all year. And what a turnaround from the era of Detroit, you know, looking back fondly on Jonathan Bernier and having nothing to look forward to, to now they have Trey Augustine putting up, what was it, a 917 save percentage. He went 27 and 2 with state. Like that is. I think he made 42 or 44 saves in the last game, too. So, yeah, he had to. It wasn't like he was standing behind a stacked team and he was stopping 20, 20 shots a game. Like, he had to work for that one. They have, and we talked a lot with Sean Shapiro before the event, actually. They have goalies of two different archetypes Kosa, ultra athletic, huge goalie, kind of what GMs in the modern NHL love. And then they have Trey Augustine, who's by modern standards undersized, but just the results are, you cannot deny how good he is. Yeah, and if you're going to be an undersized goalie, you have to be technically exceptional, and he is. Yeah. He is squared and centered to a lot of pucks. The one thing that Sean pointed out that I thought was super interesting, though, because traditionally, if you look at smaller goalies like UC Saros, they are really aggressive, feet outside of the blue paint, cutting off the angle, understanding that they need to get in front of it to make themselves bigger. Augustine doesn't do that. He plays more of the Henrik Lundqvist almost on the goal line because he likes tracking the puck further into him type of goalie, which I don't know if that translates up levels, but the fact he's even able to do that at his size is supremely impressive. All right. Let's get into the trade deadline. Uh, news first before we talk about uh, some more rumors about what Eisenman and the Red Wings are looking for. The Tanev trade, that was a little bit surprising to me. Tanev ended up going to the Dallas Stars uh, through the New Jersey Devils. Dallas gave up a second round pick in 2024, a 2026 third that's conditional, that's only moved if Dallas goes to the cup finals this year, which is, you know, they're one of the likelier teams, but that's a pretty heavy condition. And prospect Artem Grushnikov, who's just kind of like a, a bruiser type, former second round pick. Devils retained some salary to get Tanev to have retained. They got a fourth round pick from Dallas and the Stars got essentially Chris Tanev at half retained. That seemed, uh, it's not terrible for Calgary. Like they got a second, they got the prospect that they probably liked to some degree, although he wasn't exactly high on Dallas's know prospect charts but i felt like there's more juice to squeeze in this one i don't have no idea why they went so early and i feel like they could have gotten more done that's the thing for me i don't think the price that they were going to get was going to be substantially more than this it's felt like waiting to closer to the deadline might have been advantageous to maybe catch a team panicking because as we talked about eiserman was looking for a tanf type not many of them out there you could have caught a team panicking. And, you know, I think was it Craig Conroy said they did have an offer with a first involved, but it involved retain, like taking another contract back and they were not about that. There's a fit for Detroit in that hypothetical. I know. I know. I thought the exact same thing when I heard that. Uh, but not that I would have wanted to Detroit to do that necessarily, but I understand the logic there. But Calgary's owner is notoriously cheap. So I can understand why this is the bigger appeal to them out of the two offers. You know, your team entering a rebuild, if if the Red Wings were in Calgary's position now and when they were in the rebuild and you turned down the better pick because you didn't want to bring on a contract, we'd have flipped the table. But different ownership, different scenarios. So I get it. I just, 
the return's fine for me for a rental defenseman who doesn't produce much, if any, offense. It's just if you have time, use it. I don't. I don't get doing this the week before. And he was like the head of that market too. So yeah, that you're clearing the log jam for everyone else. Yeah, it was when I saw the what came through as well. I was surprised that it wasn't as much. You'd think if Calgary was going to make a trade a week in advance of the trade deadline, the offer would just be too good to say no. We're going to wait to see what everybody else comes back with. So I just. Did Calgary make the wrong move here? Was it premature? Or is is the market not what everybody thinks it is? Is it not as hot as what people are expecting it to be? I don't know. This one I was very surprised at. If maybe if Tanev was a little bit more open, and I don't know how him and his agent handled it about, you know, hinting to teams where he would extend and where he wouldn't, they probably could have got a little bit more out You're of it. You're not allowed to do that though. No, that's right. And they would never. No. I don't know. I'm I'm still of the mind that you still wait because even if teams say they're not paying a first or not paying this prospect, whatever, yeah, time changes things. And they will if team X, Y, or Z in their division go out and get a a big name ticket, they'll then pay the first. Or if one of your top four defensemen gets hurt. So Toronto, who would have been a fit for Tanev, and I think a lot of their fans wanted one, and they've been a little bit precious about their picks. Well, they went out and got a defenseman of their own, which is, uh, for the second time, Ilya Labushkin. Didn't he get lit up and hurt last night, too? Yeah, Rempe took a charge, and he seems to not be too bad. Uh, it was a, a head injury. It looks like it's not terrible. But speaking of terrible, Ilya Labushkin this year. Not- uh, yeah, he's not good. And Chris Tanev is. And there were rumors about Tanev to the Leafs seemingly all season. Either Tree Living and Conroy have some bad blood, or that's some horrible mismanagement oh, on the Leafs' yeah. part. Because they should, they could have matched that and beat it comfortably. And where they're at in their contention window, they should have. They are not a team that is waiting. They cannot afford to be patient anymore. They need to start pushing all in. And you're you're telling me Ilya Labushkin? Was the answer, but they weren't willing to pony up for Chris Tanev. Man, such a. I think there is bad <sighs> blood between Calgary and Entry Living. I think that might be a little bit of a blockade. It, it had to have been. All right. Elsewhere in the NHL, in terms of uh, the trade deadline, there's more coming out. The price on Gensel, uh, they're looking for prospects more than picks, Pittsburgh, which is a little surprising, but also not because they're they're thin. Like their prospect pool is thin. Pittsburgh doesn't know what to do because they haven't drafted anyone in the first two rounds. They're like, oh, we don't know, how, we don't know how to do this. We'll let you do it, and then we'll just see what you have available. They're like amateur what scouting? Yeah. Oh, uh, we just look. We look at public draft lists at uh, in the sixth round. We just download the cap friendly or uh, yeah, the, no, the EP prospects uh, <laughs> seven hundred page book, and we uh, we do a little test on that at the end of the season. Anyhow, that's uh, it's notable on Getzel. I think he makes him more attainable for teams with really high-end prospect pools, like, for example, uh, maybe Detroit. What else would you have to package with Beargren to get Gensel? That's what I was thinking. Beargren's going to be the, the start of that. And, and he's very close to NHL-ready, which would appeal to— well, he is NHL-ready, so that would appeal to Pittsburgh. Not for this year, but going forward. I mean, if if the secondary prospect's not that significant with Beargren, I'll take him as a rental. I He's not going to be, and— Someone will outbid, and someone's going to want to 
sign and trade him. So there's a, still a million complications that make it likely Detroit's not yeah, but at the final table for him. But but Detroit almost has too many good prospects. So you don't hate it. Uh, Hannafin, his preference is to head to the state of Florida. It looks like Lightning is the most likely team, as has been reported. And big tax evasion guy. Yeah. Well, it's not evasion if they don't tax you. So yeah, that's fair. That, that's why he likes it. And uh, Markstrom is seemingly, he's not fond of way, the way things went down so far with, with Calgary and him being on the market and all the noise around him. I still think, I don't know whose fault it is that that deal didn't get done, but I still think the Devils should have done that 20 games ago. But Markstrom doesn't seem like he's marked to be in Calgary for very long. Yeah, but they have no rush with that. The free agent market for goalies this summer is atrocious. Yeah. So if they don't get an offer they like by the deadline, they'll still be the bell of the ball for goalies in the summer. I think, yeah, I think it's an offseason thing. And then from Detroit, the the rumors on Detroit in terms of, you know, what you hear and then what's being reported publicly as well, I, I still firmly believe that I think Steve Eisman is asking about a lot of things, maybe some minor, but mostly in terms of big moves. Like just because Detroit is headed to the playoffs, uh, likely but not guaranteed, and they can sniff it and it's their first time going in a while, doesn't mean that Eisman's going to blow up the team or, or high-end picks or uh, prospects for no reason for rentals just to throw away mind you Eisenman is obsessed with getting to the playoffs like it is a massive massive priority for two reasons one business we all know nobody's stupid butts and seats that is huge for the team the LCA has not seen a playoff game yet so that that isn't a part of it whether or not anyone tells you it is or not it is but secondly and I I actually believe more importantly getting this team playoff experience will be formative in getting them attuned to what they have to do to be a competitor, not just a playoff, you know, possibility in terms of wildcard spot. I mean, a competitor. Look at how Florida better structured themselves after their cup run. That translated into this season. You are seeing the effects of the lessons they learned last year, this season. Eisman knows the value of playoff experience. Getting Cider there, getting Larkin there again, getting Raymond there, this matters. So he's obsessed with getting to the playoffs. But still, I think he's going to try to see what he can do on the blue line for not a short-term solution, but the blue line is hurting, and it has been hurting all year. I think a top six forward would be the cherry on top to the offense of this season. And, you know, short to medium term, maybe goaltending too. I think it's all on the table. Yeah, he's going to have one of the more active phones this week. I don't know what it's ultimately going to lead to. It could be... A lot of big game hunting that just doesn't come to fruition, like New Jersey and Calgary with Markstrom. Could be a lot of deals like that that maybe fall through with Detroit. But I'm all for it. I, I'm i still of the mindset, no premium assets for a rental. Don't care who it is. Secondary assets for a rental? Sure. Yeah. You, you want to give up a ton of premium assets for a long-term solution? 100% on board. But... Just please don't mortgage the future for three months of a guy. <laughs> I'm sort of curious what St. Louis is going to do with some guys on their team. You know, they're where are they trending? You know, are they do they think they can retool on the fly? Do, are they going to tear it down? You know, a guy like Robert Thomas is having a hell of a season, and I don't know what his contract looks like right now. Eight and a half for a long time, or something very close to that. So you know, 
I, I just, yeah, I don't know what St. Louis is doing in terms of their short and long term goals. You know, is he a guy, you know, you look into, you know, Jordan Cairo has very much had conflicts with, with management in St. Louis. He was booed by the fans at one point this season. Is that a guy you, you kind of ruffle around on? You know, I think there's lots of options. It's just, you know, trying to connect the dots and, and find out what everybody wants. And if you can all agree upon things, that's always the most difficult part. You said Robert Thomas, and I was like, that I just don't that that would seem insane for St. Louis to do that. Well, look at what Florida did. They traded Jonathan Huberto and Mackenzie Weger and brought in Matthew Kachuk, and everyone yeah. thought that was the most devastating move of all time. And now they're favorites. Like sometimes you gotta make crazy moves like that. I and that's the thing. Like, I think that's what Eisman's going for. I I don't think he's trying to do just anything like to be able to pull those off at the trade deadline, though, is in wild. That would be insane. That's getting out of the car, sprinting, and not stumbling over. Like it's hard. We to would. Do. I would agree that an emergency podcast would be required. Oh my god! I don't think you've ever said that out loud. I have never said that in my life. I do think that's that's the general attack from the Red Wings. You do something big if you can do it because you can see how good this team is, how much better they are than the bad teams, and how much worse they are than the true contenders. And I also think that you're not going to force it and you're not going to do something just to do something. Derek Lalone said the move might be to look internally in the organization because look at the guys going in Grand Rapids right now. And I believe him. Yeah. So I don't think he would say that publicly if the team didn't believe that. No. I know we've said this a lot of different years, but this year more than any other, I genuinely believe everything is on the table for Detroit. And it could be like the, the range of possibilities is wide open from they do literally nothing to they make a massive move and all of a sudden Jacob Chikrin's a Red Wing. Like I, I think that's all on the table, and I think Eisman is knocking on, on a lot of doors, and the work is going to continue in the offseason even if he doesn't get something done now. And it could be at any of the three positions. So more in our next episode, which will be our official trade deadline preview episode. You never know. These, these few days off, Eisman might take that time to make a deal, but team on the road, you, you never know. But the trade deadline preview episode is one of our special ones every year, so look forward to that one. And as uh, Evan steps away, he's been summoned uh, for jury duty, I'm sure, something, you know, Batman, Bat Signal, whatever. He's going to court, but he's not on the jury. Yeah, we don't know which side of the court he's on. (laughs) Uh, Let's jump into some NHL news. That Patterson contract. I'm glad we had our fun, and we said, obviously, like, this is just being insane. The most likely outcome is Vancouver keeps him, and they did. And I honestly would have thought that Vancouver kept him by saying, hey, look, we're coming to the table. We either have this trade offer from Carolina, which included a lot of premium pieces, hypothetically, or let's get this done now and let's get rid of the noise because it's at a fever pitch and this is a distraction at this point. And that was all within the realm of possibility. And I thought, okay, and then what Vancouver's going to do is offer him infinity dollars. I think they got him under market. They did. Eight they- years at $11.6 million is not enough for Elias Pettersson in my mind. No, not even close. And I mean, he was an RFA at the end of the year, so it's not like there was the risk of losing him for nothing in the offseason. So bit of bargaining power there. And I know a lot of people were comparing it to the Nylander contract, but that is a pretty key difference is the Leafs were at risk of losing him for nothing at the end of the season. Pending UFA versus pending RFA is substantial. Yeah, I thought for sure that was going to be 12 something. For sure. He is more than, I I get it, you know, Nylander had more leverage, UFA, but he is more than $100,000 better per year than Nylander, and I'm a big Nylander guy. And he's also younger, is he not? 
25 years old. He's not 26 until November. 11.6. I Call me insane, but I thought high 12s were within the realm of possibility. I really did. I thought high 12s were within the realm of possibility, and I would have thought it's high, of course. Pedersen will have a lot to live up to, of course, but if you're Vancouver, you have to do what you have to do to get it done. And for for Pedersen to run the clock out this late, I thought that's what maybe it was. It's either he doesn't like being in Vancouver or he wants way more money because of all the crap he's had to put up with. Turns out, neither. Well, this was the hypothetical that came to my mind that always reinforced how good a deal it was. Us, as Detroit Red Wings fans, if we were put in Steve Eisenman's shoes and you told me there's a top 10, number one center in the NHL going to market and he was interested in Detroit, how much are you willing to pay for that? 12 and a half, without a doubt. I would have went up to 14. Yeah, like top 10 player in the world and you're paying the premium of you have to compete with everyone else in a free market, like no RFA, like UFA. Yeah, yeah. I'd have found a way to save the extra $2 million somewhere else on the roster. I would have paid whatever the hell I had to to get that guy on my team. You so, overpay for your superstars. Yeah, and Vancouver got him at a discount. It's a tiny piece of business. And don't overpay for every superstar, Toronto. But especially if you are, you need... Uh, how annoyed are you if you're a Leafs fan? Again, the, the situations are different. The leverage is different, RFA versus UFA and all that. But if you're a Leafs fan and you watch Marner and Matthews and Nylander just walk themselves to every single phase of their contract negotiations, you know, favorable term, favorable dollars, they don't leave a lot on the table, they get everything they want. And then you see Pedersen, who, ha- who lives in a market that at times is somehow more insane than Toronto, and he signs that deal. People were worried that he was going to do what Matthews did, a short-term deal to jump in and capitalize on the next, you know, big leaps in the cap. And he is still very young and he could sign, you know, eight years at 14 point something. Look, $11.6 million is nothing to scoff at. It's not like they got him for 9 million. It's not crazy under market, but I think it's significant enough. It's almost enough per year to own a detached home in Vancouver. Is it? But... Yeah, I credit to Rutherford and Alvin in Vancouver. I I was not familiar with their game, I'll say. Like that is that could have been a brutal situation. And not only did they just get it done, they somehow got it done at a rate that nobody really expected. Credit to them. Other side of the coin in terms of uh, player futures, Kuznetsov, now a AHL player. I think the the most handsomely paid AHL player of all time, if I read that correctly. Jeez. Talk about a career devolving very rapidly. The Caps won the Cup in what, 2018? And he was very close to winning the Conn Smythe instead of Ovechkin. And five, five and a half years later, he's in the AHL. You talk about what personality and passion and drive mean for a player even the most talented players who have established themselves, if they don't keep that, their careers can fall apart. And he cleared waivers. Like They put him on waivers and he cleared. Teams know that you don't want that in your room. If no. Kuznetsov is being waived, it's because it is mission critical, worst case scenario. And he hasn't been playing well. The NHL, as we've learned over time, will forgive a lot of things if you are good. He is not. All right. 
let's save the Rempy piece because I want Evan to be here for that one. And it seems like he's going to have 10 more fights before the next time we talk as well. Uh, just a note, it looks like Winnipeg is getting some attention in terms of their season ticket holder drop uh, to the point where Gary Bettman's making visits. He's had to put out a, a statement to say that he believes in in that market and everything, which is what he has to say, whether he does or not. And it's the right thing to say. People are already angry because they're like, you you know, died on the hill of saving Arizona and you still are. But Winnipeg has a, like falters for a little bit and all of a sudden you're in there. I will say this has been happening for a little while with Winnipeg. If you remember that email they put out last year, it's kind of cryptic. Essentially, like if you want hockey in Winnipeg, you need to be coming to games. That's a good team. That's one of the best teams in the NHL. And they're not seeing that translate into season ticket sales and ticket sales and things like that. And it's a small arena. It's just like not the smallest arena in the league because Arizona, but that is not a 20,000 seat arena. They need to be like that is concerning. The Red Wings right now, the LCA is more full than it's ever been because the team is good. And with Winnipeg this good, in the face of not being projected to be this good, and they still can't fill the arena and sell more season tickets, that is concerning. I have two thoughts on this. The first one, if you look at Winnipeg ticket prices, they have not dropped the price of season tickets, even though anybody with an economics degree will be able to articulate what's going on in the market right now. And two, as it relates to Gary Bettman, even though... It is a very real problem. I don't want to hear a word from him on this until the Arizona thing's resolved. It is so infinitely stupid that you're focusing on anything but Arizona right now. uh, And you know what? Owners will feel the same way. No, 100%. You look at Winnipeg and, oh, yeah, the garage is malfunctioning. You look at the neighbor's house. It's on fire. Ah, We should probably fix that garage. (laughs) It's so stupid. All right, uh, very quickly here, Winged Wheel podcast day at the LCA. Uh, obviously, the game afterwards was a bummer, but that event was, as they all are, but especially this one, that was such a blast. First off, these hats, we we did the same caps that we did in the past with the Red Wings logo on front and the Winged Wheel podcast logo on the side, the officially co-branded uh, licensed NHL gear with the Winged Wheel podcast, which is still so surreal to say. But the, we did it in white this time as opposed to black. These look sharp, man. Oh, they're clean. These are clean as hell. So very excited that folks were able to get their hands on those. And shout out to the Detroit Red Wings. Like phenomenal working with them every single time, of course. But they were able to move mountains and get the Alex DeBrinkett bobbleheads, one of them on our, our podcast table right there. Because obviously that line starts very early to get the bobbleheads on those kinds of giveaways. And because our event started you know, at noon, they were able to get – all of our, you know, winged wheel podcast night or day uh, ticket buyers a bobblehead when they came in. So just because they were at this event, which was still a Red Wings, you know, licensed and sanctioned event, they didn't miss out on their opportunity to get the bobblehead. So thank you to the Red Wings for arranging that. That was very, very cool to see. And uh, yeah, we were fortunate to have Ken Daniels back on the show. And for the first time at a winged wheel podcast day live show, Daniela Bruce, it was awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it was nice of her to step away in this whirlwind of everything that's been going on with the Red Wings right now. Because as she talked about, when vibes are high, it's crazy, and it was it was really good for her. And it was great meeting uh, all of you who came out to the event. It never ceases to amaze me when I look out in that building and it's stuffed with mm-hmm. people wanting to listen, and it it's nuts. And we were joking before the episode every uh, every Sunday after the event. I have that 
do I have a throat infection or is my voice just worn out from talking to everybody? Because <laughs> it, it genuinely hurts. And every year I never know. Our only regrets in terms of things that we could do because we couldn't get it on the ice. Or we could, but Florida would have won 10 nothing in the first period. Uh, we wish we had more time just to talk to every single one of you. So if we didn't get a chance to shake your hand and say thank you for coming, please know that we wanted to. And for all of you who we saw for the first time or, or saw for multiple events now, like it means the world. Uh, right before we hit record, our good friend of the show, Joseph, uh, handed me a card. And I saw that it was addressed to three of us with our nicknames. And uh, I put it behind me because we had to start recording right away. We were on the clock. Joseph thought I did it because, you know, I thought it was a joke. I was like, no, I I, I believe that I should be reading this. But I, I – Oh, re- I did. When they handed it to me, I was like 50% convinced it was a glitter bomb. Yeah. <laughs> I should have opened it before because it was signed by, like, everyone. It was a congratulations for our nine-year anniversary of the show. It was extremely touching. Oh, it was awesome. Thank yeah. you, guys. That is – how, how dare they make me emotional? I know. How Like, go away. Screw <laughs> off. That was very nice. Uh, on the show, we talked about – I think it was cool for people to, to hear from Ken right away, uh, right after the Chicago game, because we've been talking. Like, it's been great to see national media – give Ken and Mick their flowers for that goal call. And the moment I, I opened with like, all right, Ken, that goal call, the room just exploded with cheers. So that was very cool to see as well. Uh, so yeah, Winged Wheel Podcast Day at the LCA. It's our last one for this season. We're excited to do them again next year in Detroit and Grand Rapids. Thank you all so much. Thank you to the Red Wings and to all of you. And and for everyone who came around at the uh, concourse to grab merch from the merch table, Evan and Catherine were... <laughs> in the 15 minutes that we had any before it all ran <laughs> Yeah, we, we had the the koozies and the the lanyards and other stuff. And it was meeting new people there. Very cool. So again, just like having the winged wheel podcast table under the Gordie Howe mural in the LCA, it is like very pinch me. So it's as cool as you guys might think it is. I promise you we're even more blown away by it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Also want to recognize very quickly, uh, Sean Shapiro, not just part of the Winged Wheel podcast content universe, you know, hosts of Expected by Whom alongside Prashanth Iyer, movie star. He is an actor as a goaltender in a new uh, beer league hockey movie called The Late Game. So Sean Shapiro is in that featuring a lot of other people you might recognize. It's now available on Prime Video. Also, there's a late game merch. We handed out some posters. We're going to give away a jersey, which we'll show you. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at Winged Wheel Pod. We'll show you what the jersey looks like. We'll be giving that away to a, a Winged Wheel Podcast listener. But Sean also arranged for a discount for the late game merch at thelategame.com using the code Winged Wheel. So grab your late game merch and check out the movie. Very, very cool to have a, uh, a real-life movie actor amongst us. I cannot wait. To put on my critics hat and nitpick the hell. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Does he have an IMDb page? Does I, Sean he, have an IMDb page? I'm finding. Do you got it? I'm going to look it up if you don't. You look it up while okay. I transition us into overtime. Let's jump into overtime, folks. The segment where we take questions and comments from our listeners. And uh, it's brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Podcast. if you want to support the show. Again, the ticket giveaways, the Discord, and the bonus episodes. All that and lots more. And you help support Winged Wheel Podcast nights and days with the Grand Rapids Griffins and the Detroit Red Wings. You allow us to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation as well as grow the show. Did you just show me that he is? He has, has an IMDb page. That's incredible. Sean Chamberlain Shapiro. <laughs> no. Yeah. Chamberlain? That's amazing. <laughs> Sean, why have we not been referring to you as Sean? Ch- oh, my God. Oh, yeah. His nickname now is Wilt. That is so <laughs> good. 
Anyhow, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Let's take a question here from uh, Mormon Sidevinson says, we hear a ton about defense prospects like Edvinson and Axel Sandin Pelica, but it seems like Andrew Gibson has been performing really well. There's not much buzz around him. As a big right-handed defenseman that was a recent second-round pick, why isn't there more chatter about his potential? Two reasons. One, he's further away, and Detroit has more immediate prospects. And second, because he should be getting more attention. He should be, but also, like, not to splash cold water on the situation, a 19-year-old defenseman having a very strong season in the OHL is not rare. It's what you need to see for someone in his position. Yeah, it's what you want. He's still a longer shot than he is not just by the nature of prospects and their development path. Yeah, but Gibson does. He has been doing well. So uh, and again, for the type of defenseman that he was projected to be when he was drafted, it's cool to see that part of his game uh, advance. So with the Sioux Greyhounds this year, he has 40 points in 59 games. So good for him. That's uh, you know, it's not Ryan Ellis out there, but. That was an aspect of this game where you're like, is there anything to be said about what he can contribute on that front? How is he going to translate and move up? And with that age in the OHL, he needed to do it. And that's what he's doing so far. Yeah. Like for context, uh, when the Elias Lindholm trade went down with Vancouver and Hunter Brustevich went back the other way, a lot of the, the talk around Brustevich in terms of value to that trade was, oh yeah, the tools are there. He's, we're not sure it'll translate to the NHL. And Brustevich is a year older than Gibson, but playing in the same league. And Brustevich is damn near leading the league in scoring as a defenseman. So, like, just just for some context. All right. Uh, Walt Partlow says, are advanced analytics showing us the weaknesses of the Red Wings, or are the Red Wings showing us the weaknesses of advanced analytics? Both. It's both. It made me, uh, like, the, the Florida game was a shining example of Detroit struggling to generate offense, which they have done for several stretches this year, which isn't uncommon, which is what the analytics are throwing up as a red flag. The one thing it has made me look up, and I know we've had a lot of discussion on it in our group, our one group chat, which is what each goal is assigned in the expected goal model. Yeah. I've, it's made me lose a little bit of faith in that metric. I understand the totality of it is you're just you know, throwing some odds out there and the larger picture does paint a little bit, but it, the real answer is both. It's, uh, it's also a third part of this. It's not the analytics themselves. It's the way they're used and the declarations that are made that are attached to it. Because often, you know, someone will cite some statistics and they'll package them together in a way that looks like it goes together. If you don't know what you're looking at, but doesn't really make sense. And then they'll draw a conclusion from it that doesn't actually make sense based on what you're looking at. And that's where I really struggle with some of the opinions that are out there on the Red Wings. I'm like, you can't be declaring, you know, that they're a bad team because their strengths right now are special teams, goaltending, blah, blah, blah. You can say those are weaknesses that are going to potentially get exposed come playoff times. That's fair. But if you're saying they're here and that's lucky and it's a fluke, you just simply aren't understanding the on-ice play or the numbers, either one. So there's a third component, and it's the interpretation of the analytics, and that's where I think analytics get a bad name unjustifiably in my mind. Reed says, which teams would you reckon have the overall best constructed roster? This would include contract prices and lengths for longer-term success. Ooh, so if we're going into the long-term, that really makes this question a lot trickier because 
you know, who's coming off ELCs, who's already on their big deal, who's expecting a raise soon. Florida's up there. Yeah. Yeah. Florida. Kachuk and Barkov are signed for a bargain. Ekblad's not getting paid a whole hell of a lot. Borofsky's contract leaves a little to be desired, but hey, if he plays like he did yesterday, you're great. Uh, Florida would be up there. Colorado still. Kale McCarr's contract alone yep. makes them worthwhile on that one. Tampa Bay has probably a $12.5, $13 million player for 9.5 for three months. Yeah, but then when one. you look at Sergachev, Sorelli, a lot of their secondary contracts, good players, very good players, but a lot of those dollars are starting to add up. Not to what they're worth on the on ice value. They're late stage. Yeah, yeah, and the age of their players doesn't lead you to have a whole hell of a lot of faith there. Yeah, man, this is a tough one because most of the teams that immediately jump to my mind are old, and I don't think that's conducive. So I'm going to go Florida, Colorado, Dallas. Yes, yes. Dallas is the answer. Dallas yeah. is a thousand percent the answer. Jim Nil, man. As soon as that, yeah, Dallas is the answer. Soft dump in the corner says, <laughs> does anyone know how stats counting is done? Is it per arena or centrally done? And why didn't that person draft Cider on their fantasy squad? I'm watching him finish checks, but somehow uh, get actual hits and they aren't counting. I think I found the shadow government of the sports betting world. It is done per arena for the most part, and it is wildly inconsistent to be fair on hit specifically the nhl did an audit of them this year and altered the stats mid-season to make them a little more reflective of what they actually are like who is the big culprit of it the islanders their hit counts at home were insane yeah so (laughs) there were some adjustments that needed to be done to me like hits yes but also like shots on goal and I don't mean just like marking where it came from and what kind of shot because that affects the analytic models that scrape that information. I mean like what they actually count as a shot or a shot on goal. Like it's gotten more refined over the years, but it's still. Yes, uh, some arenas, if it hits the goalie, it's a shot on net. And other arenas, oh, that came from outside the blue line? Piss off. Don't even ask me if that's a shot on net. It is. I think that's the next step of of what the NHL can do to to clean things up around the edges especially as sports betting has come in because they're going to want that, as you just mentioned. Simon says 27 says, why does every player mentioned in the trade deadline around the league have Toronto as a destination? Every time I read that, I ask, when are they getting the cap space? Am I missing something? Look at the size of their media market. Look at the size of their fan base. And there's your answer. Yep. It's the Dallas Cowboys. It is, you know, Manchester United. It is. That's what they are. Someone is going to have the idea and they're going to throw it out there publicly. And then it's out there. Don Bonderlay, King of the Dirty Song, says the Jared Goff chants need to stop. I love the Lions and love the chants when the Lions were in the playoffs, but it's over. Now the Red Wings are in a playoff race and we need to chant the names of Wings players. There was a Larkin chant the other night and I loved it. What are your thoughts? I don't mind it. I I understand. I agree. You have a a Michigan-born captain who is leading this team back to hopefully the playoffs and you would like to see him get more attention. You know, they, they chant Patrick Kane plenty. To me, it's more of like a, a reflection of just the hype and energy that has been in Detroit as a sports town since the Lions made the run. And though it might not make sense, and I can understand not loving it now because it can almost seem disrespectful, to me it's just a reflection of how much Detroit is in love with Detroit sports again. So I'm okay with it. I think my biggest problem with it is why limit it to Jared Goff? 
Panay Sewell doesn't roll off the tongue so easy. Amon Ra. Amon. Well, we'll see what or he signs for. Hutch, Hutch, Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> I might have heard that one when he slammed the beer. <laughs> if if this if we can't figure out the woo debate, which I, I'm not putting a stake in the ground, that was saying far away from that one. The the chants are just going to be naturally what they are. I wouldn't be surprised to see more Patrick Kane chants as they come up, especially if he resigns. And last one here from Ariel. Two questions. Uh, any chance we'll get the recording from the Grand Rapids Winged Wheel podcast night? Yes. So here's the thing. You're going to get the recordings from the first and second Detroit Red Wings versions of Winged Wheel podcast nights from this season, as well as the Grand Rapids ones. We're going to release it for patrons first as bonus episodes at some point. It's just a matter of of collecting the audio and working with some audio snafus. We did figure it out this year for the first time this event. It is much, much better for you, so the quality will be substantially better, and we will post that for our patrons. And second says, what are your favorite sweets or desserts? Oh, God. I That's going to be a hard one for me to narrow down because I have a bad sweet tooth. It is – everybody's got that crutch in their diet. Yeah. And I'm good with fruits, veggies, eating a well-balanced all – that, all that garbage. My sweet tooth is bad. I'm – oh, I had a killer uh, – where did we eat Friday night? I can't remember. I had a killer cannoli, though, for oh. dessert. It was – cannolis always get me. I was in New York City. I was in heaven for five straight days. Any good cheesecake, any good apple pie. You know animes around here? The little mm-hmm. – yeah, their peanut butter pie might be my favorite food on the face of the earth. Like this is a problem for me. Donuts, I don't give a shit what kind. Fill me up. Yeah. You know how Mika is the main character? Just yeah. in, like It's her world. We're living in it. Yeah. We have a lot of Mika-isms that Mel and I just say all the time. Like whenever we go to Target, we're saying, oh, because – we're, we're targeting something. She, when she was younger, that's what she thought it was called, target. Uh, Mika one time told Melissa that she's a sugar girly because she has a sweet tooth. She she gets that for me. She, absolutely. Yeah. And she called herself a sugar girly. And Melissa then started calling me <laughs> a sugar girly because I also have a big sweet tooth. And now my all of my relatives and Mel's family, they call me. They're like, oh, Ryan's a sugar girly. They know to get me like candy and stuff. Like, So Mika is like, she is the main character. She, big main character vibes. It's actually funny. I'll... Quick aside on that. Actually, I'll save it for overtime. Remind me to bring it up because I had a very, very funny interaction with uh, Mika's best friend's mom Mm -hmm. after school the other day that revolves exactly around this conversation. Anyhow, um, I'm a big like lemon sweets kind of guy. I'm not big chocolate, vanilla. It's a little too rich for me, but I'm a big like lemon sour candy. I'm a huge fan of most sweets I'll eat. It's funny, for as bad of a sweet tooth as I have, I'm not a big candy guy. Oh, I love it. I'm such like, a child. I don't dislike them, and I will eat them if you present them to me, but they're not the type of sweets I go out of the way for. I'm like, you put a good bakery a block from my house, I'm screwed. Yeah. I will be 300 pounds within a month. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Wing Wheel Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. Again, sorry for our dead voices as we recover from Wing Wheel Podcast Day at the LCA a huge thank you to all of you who came out to the Detroit Red Wings, to Ken, to Daniela, to you know all of our listeners, new and old, to all of our patrons. That card was, you guys are, for all of our fans, patrons or not, that card was incredibly touching. And uh, to all of our Patreon supporters, we can't have done any of that without you. To all of our name-level supporters on Patreon, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Croner's Left Knee, Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, 
Carl Brutina Nenaluski, Carl Provi, Sizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scobie, Craig Kibble, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Qasem, I Still Don't Like Kane, I'm Ryan, Nine Year Hannah, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Jonathan Miller, Kaylin Wood, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder, The Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, RA, Red Feather Desert Dogs, Ryan 50, Hannah Cap Hannah, Scott Martin, Screen Lube, That's What I Appreciate About You, The Cider House Rules, Walman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheeseback Army, Iser Plan Stan, Sam Bankson, AB, Adam Rose, Antonio Gracias, Axel Sandy Pelica, Bellingham Acid Balls, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Chuck Buff Chest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheeseback Space Force, Connor Layton and Corey Prida, Darren Fick, D Boss Snip Show, Derek James, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Griffy Boy, Gene, great to see you, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, JM Rhapsody, Jogan Rafferty, John Evans Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Les Grossman's Ungodly Firestorm, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Michigan Boy in Avs Country, Ophelia, Red Wing Tarheel, Reed, Shahid Syed, Stephen, The Hodag, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, X, formerly AA Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so much. We'll see you with the trade deadline preview. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.